It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gary Fetke. Gary, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Good morning, Labor. Well, it's a big good morning to you, Gary, and uh, just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy amputation schedule to come on as a guest of the podcast, amongst other things that you're doing. Well, I, I haven't taken any leg off. I've just taken a chunk out of the day for you, okay? <laughs> well, we're very appreciative and... Uh, and, and doing some research for this, Gary, I was very pleased to look up what Fetki meant in <laughs> Afrikaans. And have you done any digging on this? Not on the Tim Afrikaans, but the German is to unlock the secret of fat. Well, yeah, fat. Yeah, yeah. Afrikaans and fat. So there you go, which I thought was hilarious. And, the, and um, I didn't realise that until I was actually on this, on this journey for a long time. Um, interesting, my family came originally from Germany but via South Africa and then arrived under dubious circumstances, which is a lot of immigrants to Australia are. And, um, yeah, so that was, that was good fun to find that bit of uh, mischief out. Well, very exciting. And, and there's some other great legacy stuff that we'll talk about, Gary. But uh, just to give people some context, you are a, a veteran of uh, – you're an orthopedic surgeon of 27-plus years, I think, now, amongst um, other talents. How are we looking time-wise? Yeah, 30 years now. 30 years, is it? Yeah, okay. Coming up, yeah, coming up to 30, but that's about it. So you've been involved in uh, infection control down in Tasmania as well. You were leading that for 10 years, you said earlier? Yes, yeah. Uh, you're a father of five beautiful children? No, only three by Belinda. Three, okay. Yeah, so so we, two, Belinda wanted to have six, and I said no. So we've got three, and then two of them are married. And, ah, um, right. And then our daughter, our youngest daughter, who is single and, you know, ready to be married by someone if, if they want. And um, <laughs> she's got a puppy dog, so I suppose we've got six. Throw so in a couple of grandchildren. They're all actually living with us. You know, at, well, seven. We've got seven in the house at the moment with all the COVID stuff going on. So it's fairly chaotic out there. Well, it seems relatively serene at the moment, so we'll run with that. And this is uh, an open casting call to uh, do some recruitment for the Fetke uh, family. No, 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 I've got enough, I've got enough on the plate. <laughs> now, G uh, Gary, uh, we had the pleasure of having your wife, your beautiful wife of 40 years, I think you've been together. Uh, not quite. It's only um, 479 months and 11 days. <laughs> Is that what you were working out before, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? 
You're an extraordinary couple and a power couple, I would describe you if I had to uh, to give you a tag. No, I think Belinda used to it. How about we just speak superhero duo? Well, have you figured out what your superhero names are? Oh, look, um, we'll just call it Belinda and, and her partner. <laughs> well, we for those for those listening and watching, it's imperative that you do the combo of these podcasts because they will help make a lot of sense and they will tie in beautifully with each other. But today, Gary, we, we want to get your perspective on your background, and I'll start off with your uh, your grandmother who uh, was in Nazi Germany and of Jewish descent, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? It's interesting how you look, you find out about your roots along the way. And I've had a, a social justice hat on for as long as I know and community awareness and, and that altruistic side. I'm not, that's just me. My mother wore that hat, but she died when I was a teenager from a medical misdiagnosis. Um, and so that's probably why I have my agenda within the medical community. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago when um, we were on a trip to Europe when Belinda, I, I gave, or I ended up giving the Belinda's, well, a lot of Belinda's work uh, justice in a talk in the US at the CrossFit Games on that whole central role of how we've been manipulated by propaganda and the role of the Adventist Church in determining our guidelines. And on that trip, it was a trip through Europe of what I call a, a pilgrimage of propaganda. And when you realise how much of information today is determined by history and propaganda, and it's not actually based on science and fact, it's actually opinion and power and money and religious ideology. And so on that trip, we actually were going back through Germany and uh, my uncle took me uh, last time we caught up with him because he only just died a few months ago. We went uh, to the Nazi war museum. And in that Nazi war museum in Nuremberg is um, there are two things which directly relate to my family. And one is a picture of there is a picture of the ugly Jewish children who were used in Nazi propaganda. And this is what an ugly Jewish child looks like. And my mother was the picture that was used by the Nazis for what an ugly Jewish child looks like. As it turns out, they, they escaped to South America. And when she was about 18, she actually won a beauty contest in Chile as the ugly Jewish child. So, you know, they, they got a bad photo, they manipulate, you know, and essentially that was the ugly Jewish child. My grandmother um, was an interesting person. And again, I only just really found a lot of this out in the last couple of years. She uh, was a Jewess uh, growing up in Nazi Germany. She was married to a uh, fellow who ran a boarding house, but she was standing up on beer hall tables denouncing the Nazis. And at, in the Nazi museum, there's a Gestapo officer who said he only ever respected four Jews in his life and there were three men and one woman. That woman was my grandmother. So there's only this social justice when you see something wrong to do something about it. And it's just, you know, I didn't even know that I had this history. But quite clearly it sort of flowed down. And my mother was quite active with um, um, immigrants to Australia, teaching them English because she came to Australia without knowing any English. 
So that, that this pathway, uh, I, I don't think, I think my grandmother and my mother would be proud of what we're doing. That's all. Well, Gary, it's an extraordinary story, and, I, and I'd love to know what the equivalent these days would be in terms of standing up in a beer hall denouncing the the Nazi uh, regime back in 1943 or whenever the heck it was. But well, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I have the honour, I suppose. You know, part of me is, you know, I feel quite honoured, but the other part, that, you know, excuse the language, scared shitless, that I managed to be the only doctor in Australia to be targeted for by the cereal industry, by big business, for um, for my message about low carb. So you know, I suppose that's nowhere, you know, my life, it, well, actually we've had some threats along the way, but, uh, you know, that's I suppose the moral situation we're in at the moment. You've got to stand up against this stuff. Well, let's explore this a little bit deeper, shall we? Because you, uh, when you were in your late 30s, came down with a cancer diagnosis in the form of a, a pituitary tumour. Yeah, nasty pituitary tumour, which was wrapped around a few things and uh, is still there, actually. And so I'm still living with that uh, that process, really. And so you got you got the diagnosis, and then what happened? Uh, look, I, was, I thought I had a scratch on my glasses, and um, five days later I realised it wasn't a scratch on my glasses. I was actually taking on the system about infection control at that time. And someone said, oh, you've got a stress-related headache. And I said, I don't, I don't get headaches. I give people headaches. And um, that hasn't stopped. Anyway, five days later, I ended up in intensive care having uh, brain surgery to uh, get it off my, my optic nerve. And then I had chemotherapy and radiotherapy and um, ongoing monitoring ever since. And along the way, uh, nobody gave me any advice about what I should eat or not eat. And, that, you know, it's, and uh, what is it now? More than 10 years ago, I started looking at that concept and it was really related to a pharmacist colleague who said that she'd just been hearing about the role of metformin in cancer management. Um, and if you go back 10 years, it was just a little few hints in the literature. And I, you know, I'm just a dumb orthopaedic surgeon. And I thought, well, what does metformin do in diabetes? Metformin is a drug which effectively reduces the amount of sugar or glucose in your tissue. It actually drives it into tissue, but nonetheless, at that time, I thought, okay, well, if, if cancer if theoretically thrives in a sugar environment and you reduce the sugar environment with a drug, why don't I just reduce the sugar? You know, incredibly simplistic view. <clears throat> And that's when I started my journey down that sugar path and uh, realising how little we actually knew about sugar even 10 years ago and how much the information, particularly the fructose half of sugar, sugar's glucose and fructose together, but that we know quite a lot about glucose. We knew bugger all about fructose until about 2010, 2011. And when that jigsaw just started evolving for me and um, what you can't see, or you probably can see behind me, we've got I've got two or three computers here, and often I've got two or three search engines open with a couple of screens with forty or fifty tabs, and I've just start seeing patterns with jigsaws, and uh, you know it's my day job is putting jigsaws back together, and here um, the fructose all started coming together, and and it was piecemeal to start with, like I knew there was a problem with sugar. But by 2013, 14, then I started coming up with this role of inflammation. And that's when I started getting into trouble with the system. 
you know, I was getting trolled on social media because I was talking about sugar. But then when I started outwardly speaking about the fact that processed food in that combination of the perfect storm, you know, where I talk about fructose, then refined carbohydrate with the insulin response combined with polyunsaturated oils creates inflammation. And all I ever described was a model of inflammation. And when you do the opposite of it, then you reduce inflammation. And so that's when I started going public. I was very excited. I can still remember April putting a little podcast, you know, little uh, video together, got, you know, what you know, videoed it in front of a dozen people and said, I want to make this live. So I'm quite proud to be the first person to actually describe a model of inflammation based on what we eat. So effectively, sugar and carbs are the kindling of the fire and the polyunsaturated oils are the match. That's incredibly simple. And it's all based on biochemistry. And that's when the war started. Because what I say, you know, what happens with nutrition inside the body and the cell that's science, that's biochemistry, it's inarguable. What happens outside the body is opinion, politics, money, religion, and it's all there buried in the pages of history. And that's really where, you know, the biochemistry, I'm completely over it. You, either, you, you don't have to agree with me, but if you don't agree with me on the biochemistry, you're actually wrong, you know. Yeah, it's, I've, I've never lost a debate on the biochemistry of the perils of sugar, fructose, refined carbs, that whole insulin game, polyunsaturated oils. It's just biochemistry. So therefore, that's where Belinda came into the game because I was getting hammered in that medical you know, space because the cereal industry were targeting me, report, you know, indirectly through dietitians reported me to the medical board. And I'm having to defend things like, you know, telling my patients to stop, you know, cut back on their sugar. I've, at one time, I was reported for inappropriately reversing someone's diabetes. Uh, is this, and I, I know that's ludicrous, but that, that's what happened. And then the medical board said, yeah, it was, you know, it's inappropriate for orthopedic surgeons to be involved in doing that. And I'm going, it's just frigging biochemistry. And ultimately... Either I'm dangerous and deregister me, or I'm actually right. And that, but that took, you know, that ended up taking the best part of six years to get to that point. And then ultimately, you know, they backed down and they apologised to me. But you know, we're still six years down. I just want to touch on something, Gary, that you've that you've inadvertently overlooked, which I think is really important for our audience because. As an orthopedic surgeon, you're, you're based in Tasmania and you're in a catchment area there and you are responsible for a lot of diet-related or diabetes-related amputations, uh, amongst other things. And what seemed to be happening was there was a dramatic increase in the number of surgeries that were required that related to this, this diet, this, this food mismanagement. Well, I, I used to be involved in the amputations. That's a very, very rare occurrence now. I, I've no longer working in the public health system. That's an ongoing um, chasm, which, you know, I, I've extended the olive branch several times, but there are no more leaves left on it. And um, I'd love to be back there, but there's a, that's a political side related to medical boards, the health system that 
there needs to be some compromise on the other side to accept that they actually did the wrong thing by me. But for many years, I looked after the diabetic foot complications in northern Tasmania and where it was an occasional occurrence to be nibbling toes and trimming bits of feet off and then it became amputations. This just, you know, and I ended up having a clinic every Friday, which used to be called Fetke's Effed Up Fructose Free Fungating Foot Folly Fridays. <laughs> but I was never quite certain what the effed up means. And, and, <laughs> but essentially that, you know, and I'd, I'd say, you know, medical students, I'd say come along and just witness what we're about to see here. This, this, is, this is modern day leprosy. You're going to see more things, which is completely and utterly reversible. And I see people with these end-stage diabetic feet, and that's too late for them. But even in the late stages, they'd adopt a low-carb, low-sugar intake and we'd be saving toes, saving feet, saving limbs. And sometimes it was only prolonging it for six months, 12 months, but I could see tissue improve within days and weeks just by changing the environment. And then seeing patients who felt completely empowered by that change. And, and they go, why, hasn't, why haven't I been told this before? Why have I got out of control diabetes? Or more importantly, to be fair, a lot of their families would say that. Because by the time your feet are rotting off, then your brain's frazzled. You know, a lot of them can't get, the, get themselves out of the ditch at that point in time. So again, I was seeing the end stage stuff knowing it was preventable and where it was a minor issue before, you know, 20 years ago, it's just so commonplace. And I, I only recent, only a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with the podiatrists at the hospital who said, look, it, it's just out of control. And that, that's it. We've essentially got a preventable condition that's out of control. It has an enormous personal cost, an enormous community cost. And you don't see these people walking down the street because they're just they're housebound, they're having daily dressings, they're having antibiotics, they've lost their mobility, they lose their independence. But when they lose their independence, they're requiring others to take them on as well. It's, it, it, it's so frustrating knowing that with a simple dietary change to take processed food out of the equation, you can just change people's lives. And you know that you you know you're on that journey as well. Once you you know I've, I've often quoted this: once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see the benefits, you cannot unsee it. You can never turn back. They call that being red pilled, in reference to the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did that talk last year, called the failure of the medical education, and I used the, the red pill blue pill analogy. It's just. You know, if, if you want the red pill, you're, you're never going to get back from there. Uh, I gave that talk to um, the National um, Medical Students uh, uh, meeting and I had a few of them come up to the end and they said they, uh, if, that I'd completely screwed with their heads. And I went, excellent. You know, when you realise that our medical education has been corrupted for since 1910 with um, the role of Andrew, the thing called the Flexner Report, we can drift down that path for a sec, you know, just... Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go down that, that path. So, you know, most people, when you go to your doctor or you go to your healthcare professional, you go to the internet or wherever you're getting your medical advice from, you've got to realise where it came from. 
And so it's very, I call it generational education. You know, I will believe my teachers and my textbooks because they'll believe their teachers and their textbooks. And when you've, but if you actually go back in time, you can actually see where it completely came unraveled. So medical education got unraveled in 2000, sorry, 1910, and dietetic nutritional education got unraveled in 1917, October 23, 1917, to be approximate. And it's all there in history. So, you know, um, Belinda I, you know, would have talked to you about the, you know, the start of nutritional educational dietetics by the American Dietetics Association, which had its foundation in the cereal industry and John Harvey Kellogg. And then they wrote the textbooks for the next 40 years. And then that formed the basis of all Western education in related to nutrition, which happened to be vegan, happened to be cereal-based with this anti-meat agenda. And that, but I can understand why dietitians believe that because that's what their textbook says. And everyone, know, everyone knows don't question your textbooks because they can't possibly be wrong. So the failure of medical education is that when you're a student at anything, we're educated you know, right from primary school through to tertiary education on the model of read, repeat, reward. Read it repeat it, regurgitate it, pass, here's your career path. Here's the guideline, read the guideline, follow the guideline, can't possibly get wrong. But until you realise that that's in fact been generational and that our textbooks and the literature has been constantly being written by industry. So in 1910, um, Andrew Carnegie of Steel and... Um, um, oh, who's the other guy? Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller of oil. They commissioned the thing called a Flexner report, and Abraham Flexner went around uh, the US and Canada doing a fairly cursory assessment of the, the university medical schools and came up with a thing called a Flexner report, and that effectively got rid of holistic healthcare. They got rid of naturopathy. They were trying to clean it all up, but they what was born out of that was... A const, a, the, the, the commitment to, if you have a medical problem, we need to either medicate or to operate. We took preventative health care out of the equation. They, they said they didn't, but they did. The whole model became test, find a diagnosis, medicate and operate. And that same group, effectively Rockefeller and Carnegie, were the birth of the pharmaceutical industry for the world at a corporate level. So... They then started writing all the textbooks and the literature was heavily supported. So, again, if you want to do research, you get funded by industry. It, it, there's very little public money around for research. So every time research is done, it, you know, particularly today, you know, it's to prove a point, it's an agenda, and as a result of that, over 110 years now, our medical education has been completely corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry. There's a textbook called Harrison's. Now, it's one of the Bibles of medicine. Um, I can remember my father actually giving me a copy of Harrison's on my 18th birthday. And um, that was, you know, my father wasn't, you know, he was you know, not, def not well off at all. So he saved up to actually buy me a copy of Harrison's. And he didn't actually give it to me on my 18th birthday. He gave it to me on the morning after my 18th birthday. And I was on the back step and he said, you can't, is under the section called alcohol intoxication. 
So a father has a sense of humor. But, so I, but Harrison's, the authors of Harrison's, uh, two years ago, the editors, sorry, were paid over $12 million US by the pharmaceutical industry. So our textbooks, even today, are being manipulated, guided by this whole issue of pharmaceutical money. So these are the textbooks that, are, that anyone doing a medical degree rely upon for their information. And cannot be questioned. Okay. You, I mean, you get an email from me, you know, and, and on the bottom of it you will have read that sci- and I have science evolves by being challenged, not by being followed. And what we've done now with the system with the, is the medical regulators and in, here in Australia it's APRA. If you don't follow the guideline, someone will report you. And the guidelines have been written by the food industry or the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, whichever topic we touch upon, guidelines, because the only people who've got time to you know, effectively get onto guideline committees are those that are being not having to earn their keep. You know, big generalisation, and there's lots of well-meaning people there, but effectively food and pharma have too much of a role to play in writing our guidelines, particularly food. So therefore, those guidelines, if you don't follow the guidelines, then someone will report you, get you into trouble, tie you up in mischief. But unless we challenge the paradigm, we challenge what's coming at us every day. We have no evolution of science. So this, I find this very disturbing. It's very 1984-ish. You know, we can talk about COVID. We can talk about you know, diabetes. We can talk about fitness. We can talk about anything that's got anything to do with science, climate change. If you don't follow the party line and you question an authority, an eminence, then you are seen to be trouble. When, in fact, we should be every single day in questioning what we do. That's called quality assurance. So on one hand, we're supposed to be in quality assurance in the workplace, you know, looking at our current practices in view of the current evidence and then seeing if we can do better. But on the other side of the coin, if you do that, you get into all sorts of trouble. But I know which side of the fence I'd rather sit on because it's, it's the right side. You know, one, of, one, of, one of my colleagues... Um, who's not always agreed with me, in fact, most of the time disagreed with me. I, I have quite a smug look on my face now from time to time when you know, there's a meeting we went to about uh, a few years ago and we both heard exactly the same evidence, which had been a 15-year turnaround in my favour. And I won't, I won't get too personal about it, but I didn't say anything after it and he, because he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew. And then about six months later, he said something to me in a meeting. He said, I'm so frustrated. You didn't actually acknowledge that, you know, the whole thing. I said, but I knew that you knew that I knew that, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and um, it, it's, really, it, it's really important to challenge what we're doing. And I, I don't mind being wrong, but I want to make certain that what you're telling me is right. Amen. And, and that's I- a, just a good way to live. This is uh, that, that aligns exactly with how I feel about things, uh, Gary and. and oh, no, um, I want you to disagree with me. <laughs> well, we will disagree on the odd thing here and there, particularly on cricket. But uh, this is the thing that's so important, and it's so great hearing it from someone who's actually 
qualified, you know, you know, from from a, a medical point of view to share this stuff as well. All I want to know is the truth, so I can make an, an informed decision. That's all I want to know, right? And that's the whole point of these these podcasts, in many ways, is to to allow a platform for people like you to share this this information. But you know, people will be listening to this or watching this, thinking this cannot possibly be true, Gary. Like, what, what do you say to people that are just in total disbelief that they are systematically being lied to? I look it, it, this. <laughs> The the one line answer. Oh, I've got I've got lots of one line answers, you know. But what's your favourite? <laughs> um, I, I, I this happened yesterday. Okay, um, a friend asked me about their you know the cholesterol test because the, their cholesterol was going up, and the, their their GP was worried. So I get this. I have for years. If a GP says to me, oh, you're talking about all this low-carb, healthy fat stuff, I'm worried about their cholesterol. And my one-line answer back at them is, well, what's cholesterol? And the tragic thing is that 99% of doctors can't give me an answer to what cholesterol is. Yet they're quite happy to prescribe a cholesterol-lowering agent, a statin, with known side effects with known repercussions for a lifetime to the patient without actually knowing what cholesterol is. And that scares the bejesus out of me. And this was a dear friend yesterday and I said, and he didn't know the answer, and I knew he didn't know the answer, but I said, what I say to patients is if a doctor says to you that you've got to go on a cholesterol-lowering agent, just ask them what cholesterol is. And if they can't give you at least five answers as to what cholesterol is, then you know they should be walking out the door, let alone taking a drug for what the doctor doesn't know the treatments for. And I'm really that's inflammatory to say that, but we as doctors need to know where our education is, and we can't just say, "Oh, the cholesterol's up, therefore we're going to follow the guideline." I want to know what the mechanism of that is. And I don't know everything, but if you're going to put a patient on a drug, if I'm going to operate on you. I'm going to talk about the pros and cons about every every operation I've got to do. I've got to put, do a consent form. Why don't we do a consent form? Why isn't every doctor having to do a consent form, an informed consent form for every single drug that they prescribe to a patient? I mean, it's not done. It would just tie the system up in paperwork. But you just think about it. You're putting people on an intervention for not just one day with an operation. But for you know weeks or months or years, you should sign a consent form, which means you know you've actually gone through the pros and cons, the risks and the benefits, the cost to the patient, the cost to the community, how much you're going to be out of pocket, all that sort of. It just never happens. Yet for a cholesterol, you know, a cholesterol is just a prime example. You know that we have an entire industry out there based on. So if they then say, look, my doctor, I don't, you know, I say, well, okay, get the doctor to do a coronary. To do two things. One is a lipid subfraction analysis, which is going to cost you $100, but that's going to give you a true profile. That's what the Mayo Clinic's now doing in their research because they've tossed out the standard cholesterol profile. So what does this new test do? Well, it looks at every fraction of, the, of lipid transport particles around the body. It looks at you know the LDLs, the HDLs, the VLDLs. It breaks down the LDLs into seven different sections. 
So LDLs are the big, the low-density lipoproteins. They're the big transporters. Most of the work they're doing is just transporting fat around the body. You're only really interested in the number of the small, dense ones. And in fact, you're not even interested in them particularly. You're interested in the ones that are oxidized, that have become damaged, that are part of the inflammatory process. And the closest thing we've got to that is a lipid subfraction analysis. The thing we've got furthest from it is a standard lipid profile, which everyone's basing their decisions on because the the pharmaceutical industry has been involved in dictating what you should do with that standard lipid profile, which is completely out of date and arguably irrelevant for most of the numbers. And I realise that's an inflammatory comment to my medical colleagues, but yeah, it is because get your act together because you, you need to know the answer. And before you put people on statins, then do a coronary artery calcium score, see what their real risk is. And there's more and more work coming out on that. So, okay, your lipid profile might be a bit odd, but what's your actual risk? And a coronary artery calcium score does it. And in Australia, we have the, you know, we've got the technology to do that. It's readily available. And in most you know, places around the world, it is now, Western places anyway. So I'm just calling into, a, I'm calling into a, the accountability of the medical profession because I'm quite frustrated by them. You know, you know, I've, been, you know, I've been talking about you know, the perils of smoking for 25 years and I wouldn't, wouldn't operate on smokers. You know, elective major surgery, which requiring bone grafting, if you needed that and you were smoking, I'd say come back when you've stopped smoking. So my, my, my public health drawing lines in the sand has been around for a long time. And we either do something as a medical profession or we just go, oh, you poor thing, you're, you're, you know, you're fat, you're unwell, and um, I feel sorry for you, but I'll still operate. Well, that, that, that doesn't, that's no good. So I might polarise my medical community, my patients, but I'll say, okay, you're fat, unwell, and you're sick related to it. I don't say that, that but, you know, they, we're on that page. They know that you know that yeah. they know that you know. <laughs> but here's a tool for you to get out of it. You know, when doctors just say, oh, you need to go away and lose weight or you need to go and exercise to lose weight, then they're leading the patient down a path of disaster and failure. Whereas if you start giving them tools that we know that work, so you can actually reverse start putting patients' diabetes into remission within six hours if you don't feed them carbohydrate. You can see people's arthritis improve within days by reducing the carbohydrate load. And that's all related to the role of insulin and inflammation. There's a really good article that came out of China earlier this year related to the role of inflammation, insulin, and knee arthritis. So it, it's, it's all there. And on a day-to-day basis, I see that. I see people actually just get their act together. Uh, last week, I saw a 75-year-old lady who's six or eight weeks earlier, she came in with aches and pains and stuff. And I said, look, before we do anything surgically, why don't you give this a crack? So she came in six weeks later. She'd lost four kilos. She was bouncing off the world. She said, I've got so much energy. I've lost all of my back pain. I've lost all of my back pain. I'm cooking life's fun. My husband's lost four kilos. We're enjoying eating. This food is fabulous, but I've still got an arthritic toe. Can you do something about that? So we've narrowed all of these complex situations down to actually what something that I could do. So I, you know, I've still got a job, but I've got less inflamed patients who are empowered 
who have taken back control of their lives. And it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 70 or I've got one guy in his 90s who'd started doing this so he could do more bushwalking. Now it's, it's just giving control back to people. That's all. You know, and, and taking away the victim mentality and saying, this is yours. This is yours to take back. And that's the exciting bit. Gets me into trouble all the time, but it's exciting. Well, it's totally worth it, Gary. And, and my my father, who I call out a lot on this podcast, particularly when I've got people like Bruckner, Noakes, Paul Mason, you know, like uh, Joy Kitty, any of these people that are very knowledgeable because he's a type 2 diabetic who was who was told he had about six months to live when he was in his 30s. And he was a radio announcer for 40 years. So sitting on his backside um, as a really a really successful radio announcer, smoked meat pies every day, just the epitome of unhealthy. Was told he had six months to live back in back in the day. And then so was terrified to ever go see a doctor ever again. He then had a, a heart attack about 10 years ago, which resulted in a quadruple bypass. Uh, he's he's um, managing his type 2 diabetes now with uh, with drugs, he's not on insulin as yet, but I can see a, a cognitive and a like a degeneration of his of his ability to think, and like he's got zero interest in in moving hardly. He doesn't have any get up and go, and he's now switched that thinking around from not wanting anything to do with the medical profession to relying wholly and solely on on their. You know their advice: take your statins, take your warfarin, take all this other stuff. And and I've got all this knowledge that I'm happy to share. And I'll admit, I'm not a doctor. I'll never proclaim to know everything, but I can put you in touch with people that that know this stuff. And yet, no interest, no interest in pursuing any of these this direction to improve their life and to get some of those results, like you're talking about with these amazing 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 year olds. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if his doctor told him to do all this stuff. This is my point. How do we get people to to take this stuff serious? Like how, how do we get the mainstream to start promoting this way of, of living? What well, do we have to do? This is grassroots stuff because we've been trying to promote this at a medical level only to find the pharmaceutical industry, the food industry, with very, very powerful lobbying, silencing that message. Um, you know, and you know, particularly and also also down the the, the vegan agenda pathway. You know, they, they've, the vegans have just become uh, foot soldiers for the processed food industry. They don't even know it. They think they're on the right pathway, and they're, they're probably eating a bit healthier than they were when they were eating crap food. But they've become foot soldiers. And um, I don't know if Belinda mentioned, you know, in the chat to you about um, Tracy Brown. Tracy Brown's the CEO of Diabetes uh, USA. And Tracy Brown is the first CEO of a diabetes association that's actually had diabetes herself. So she's actually turned it around, gone low carb, <clears throat> apparently come off most of her medications and feels great and has been announcing that very publicly. But just in the last several weeks, all of her talks where she's been announcing that public have disappeared off the internet. Oh, she did. She did mention this lady yesterday. Yeah, so fascinating. This is. It's really hard to take stuff off the internet, unless you've got. And I, 
this is not conspiracy stuff. You know, it's not a conspiracy if it's a fact. You know, if you know, and that's the thing which happened to me. You know, it's not. I'm, I'm not saying that the. You know, I'm, I'm not making up this stuff that the cereal industry came after me. We've actually got the internal emails and the documents saying cereal sales are down in Australia and New Zealand based on the concepts of low carbon paleo, and these are the names of seven people uh, that are for targeting. That, that's not a conspiracy. That that's actually what happened. Yeah. So I mean. Um, you know the fact, and you know, because uh, uh, the message, you know, effectively what I'm talking about with eating, you know, I've rewritten the dietary guidelines of the world in my spare time. I, I've, I've put it in one sentence, and that is, we should be eating fresh, local, seasonal, whole food, based on our culture and environment, reducing added sugar and processed food. When you take that apart, I've actually described low-carb, healthy, fat living. I've described that pathway towards keto if you want to go hardcore. Um, and if you take culture into it, then you actually introduce concepts of fasting. But in that one paragraph, I've denounced the entire processed food industry. But that's the answer. The processed food industry is not interested in this message because that's their profit. And Belinda's work is for profit and profit, you know, P-R-O-F-I-T and P-H-E-T. But the pharmaceutical industry are effectively funding the educational courses of Diabetes Australia. You go to a diabetes, the diabetes books, if you look on the back of them, they're funded by, you know, supported by AstraZeneca and Novartis, which are the insulin and the medication providers. You know, the, the, it, 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 I can't, if you go to an obesity meeting in medicine or a diabetes meeting, it's just sponsored by pharma. And when you go there, the food that's served it is, you know, white bread, sandwiches, cakes, you know, fruit juices, all of which are going to make someone with diabetes worse. And yet the, there are individuals in the community. This is why it's still grassroots. You know, that's why there are more and more people hearing about low carb and the benefits of that, particularly in diabetes. Um, you, just, you reminded me when you were talking about your father. I wanted to talk about the Maillard reaction. You, have you heard of the Maillard reaction? No, I don't think I have. What's the Maillard reaction? You have. And, you know, a, a lot of my talks <laughs> are hiding in plain sight. You know, I, I point out stuff which you already know. So the Maillard reaction is a cooking term. So when you actually get, you know, when you put something in the oven and you fry it, it goes brown. That's the Maillard reaction. So when you act, and so when you go to a bakehouse or you know a bakery, you see all that bread with a brown crust on it, or a, a, a cinnamon bun or whatever. It's got a brown crust on it. So that Maillard reaction is when, under the effect of heat, the glucose combines with protein, and that caramelizes it. It goes brown. Now exactly the same thing happens in diabetes. I don't use this to describe it. To, pay, to people, I describe it to endocrinologists and the endocrinologists go, oh, I, I get it. So effectively, when your blood glucose, so in diabetes, you can't tolerate the blood, the glucose that you present the body with. That's it. If you eat carbohydrate and glucose, your body can't metabolize it. So my argument is just don't eat it. So when your blood glucose goes up, your tissue glucose goes up by about 80% of that. And in the tissue, 
the glucose combines with the protein under the effect of body heat and the Maillard reaction occurs. So every time your blood glucose spikes in diabetes, you are effectively toasting your brain, your eyes, your kidneys, your ankles, your toes. Every single organ is affected by the Maillard reaction. So every time I walk past a bakery, because bread was one of the hardest things for me to give up. It is for a lot of people. Yeah, it tastes good, got crunch, it's got all sort of cultural, you know, cognitive, you know, tick, ticks all these boxes over many years. But I walk past it now and I go, that's the Maillard reaction. If I eat that, that's going to happen in my brain. I'm going to be toasting my brain if I eat bread. And so I use that analogy, you know, you ask for what lines you're trying to get through to people. And I say, I've actually got a piece of toast in my drawer in my office. And it's interesting, it's been there for about four years and it's still brown and crusted and dried out. It's got no mould on it because that's the sugar in it. It's just, but it's something we've recognised. So we all know the Maillard reaction. We've all seen it every day when we're cooking. And that's diabetes or the complications of it. It's a, it's a really wonderful uh, explanation. And um, I, I mentioned something to Belinda in our recording. I feel like, and, and I'll try and articulate this in the best way I can, I feel like modern society, the reason why there's so many crazy, insane things happening in the world, it seems like it's starting a crescendo as well, particularly in the last couple of years and especially this year, is, is related to an improper nutritional balance or a lack of nutrition in, in a majority of people, and it's causing a lot of mental health. And I'm not just talking about depression or anxiety type of stuff. There's, there's that as well. But I'm thinking like almost like a temporary temporary insanity. And, and I speak from a place of having experienced that, having gone through my own health journey, I remember how my brain used to function when I was fueling it with crap. And and I just wonder, you know, if we haven't even begun to see the start of the craziness that might eventuate if we don't bring this stuff, in, you know, back into line. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my or my, 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 one of my pedestals or platforms is that inflammation sits behind every single problem we have every medical problem, including brain inflammation. And if we can describe that inflammation based on nutrition, which is sugar, carbs and polyunsaturated oils in combination, then we've in fact got the answer sitting there in plain sight. But the trouble is the majority of people are fueled on nutrient-poor food, which is carbohydrate. The average diet is at least 50% carbohydrate. And there's not a single biochemical pathway in the, in the body that requires us to eat carbohydrate, not one. This whole 130 grams a day for our brain, you know, to eat 130 grams of carbohydrate is complete BS. It just doesn't exist. You know, otherwise we'd die overnight, you know, if we didn't eat. It's yeah. Just, it's just, forget fasting, just overnight we'd die if we didn't actually you know, keep that constant fuel going in. <clears throat> so... How do we turn that around? It, 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 essentially, we, you know, when I cut my sugar and carbs down, my brain started working better. And arguably the state of ketosis 
when you move into that ketotic state, nutritional ketosis, not talking about ketoacidosis, it's completely, you know, streets between them, then you end up improving your mental acuity. Our babies thrive in a state of ketosis. In fact, that, you know, through pregnancy, brains developed on ketones. We know that kids that have had um, the babies of mothers that had more um, hyperemesis, more vomiting, nausea and vomiting of pregnancy, where the mothers have been particularly unwell, particularly that first trimester, those babies actually are born healthier than the ones that are on a carbohydrate diet. And you can compare the two groups, those with hyperemesis gravidarum, so the ones that are really, really crook, been studied tens of thousands of times over and compare that to the babies of women with gestational diabetes, those babies that grew up in a state where they would have had long times in ketosis are actually healthier, more likely to go through to term, um, normal birth weights, lower complications, and their cognition is better at six months and 12 months. And on the other side of the coin, those babies born of women who have got gestational diabetes, particularly the earlier that is in the, in the pregnancy, are more likely to have birth problems, babies that are too heavy or too light, more likely to have birth defects, particularly cardiovascular. And the kids at what, you know six months and 12 months are not doing as well cognitively. And arguably, a little bit of literature saying they've got higher rates of ADD. I'm not making this bit. And so people said, oh, you can't talk about pregnancy. And I said, well, actually my daughter, or our daughter was pregnant. She had horrible morning sickness. And I started looking at the research. And this has been looked at tens of thousands of cases. It's not, here's a small paper. We've got all this information sitting there in plain sight. We're just not drawing conclusions. So, you know, coming back to your, your situation as a society, yeah, I think we're in meltdown. You know, you've only got to read Brave New World, 1984. I, get, I, I read those two books as well as Atlas Shrugged last year which is a classic of the 1950s, and that was a fairly right-wing book. But nonetheless, we're watching society without leadership. We're watching society without, without a clear pathway forward. And I think that's because society is largely in a state of a mental fugue. And yes, I think it's related to sugar and highly processed food. And when you get take back that control, everyone, look, we're, you know, you've only got to chat to people as you do and I do, you know, they're, they're going aimlessly. They don't know the path forward. You know, what's happening next year, six months away, 12 months away? Are we going to have a trip? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my mortgage? All of that sort of thing. And I, I say to people quite often, I think sometimes you're down a deep, dark well and it all, you know, it's hopeless. You've got an arthritic knee, hip, shoulder, you're in pain. You're worried about your job. You're worried about your family. You're worried about all of those things. The one thing that you have control of today is what you eat or what you don't eat. So I'm going to put a ladder down there inside your well. I'm just going to put a ladder there. Here's this concept of LCHF, eating real food. If you want to put your foot on it and put one step up, just start seeing if it has any effect. I'm happy to hold onto the ladder for you, but just give them back that one bit of control. And I use that analogy because it works and I've seen so many people put one foot on top of the ladder, ladder and find actually it's not that hard to put one foot and then another step and another. And that, that's, why we, that's why Belinda and I still do all this stuff because 
people get back to us and say, hang on, what you're doing changed my life. And it may not just be nutrition. It might be just because we've also given the finger to, you know, the authorities that have, I give the finger, Belinda's much nicer than me, you know, but <laughs> just it, it, it's the right thing to do. And that's the thing, Gary. It, it is. It's just the right thing to do. And this is why I love this community so much because, it, it, you know, the majority of people start out coming from a place of going through their own health journey and wanting to, to they've, they've, they've seen the light, they've taken the pill, the red pill, and they, they now have this knowledge where they can help people. And that's the whole point of why I'm doing this. And the situation with my dad, who I love, you know, I love my father dearly. But the reality is that, like, if he drops off in the next year or two, it's a fucking waste. <laughs> and 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 I, you know, and I hope he watches this. Um, and I hope other people that are watching this who are going through a similar thing are offended or triggered by the statement because, you know, if he once he's gone, he's gone. All right, and and uh, he's got grandchildren, you know, like yourself that that ne- need to have their grandfather around and having cognitive function. And it's not that I'm worried about him just dying in his sleep. I'm worried about him having a full-blown stroke and ending up being a huge burden on on his partner and, and the family. And I'm of the opinion, and this sounds really harsh, Gary, I'm of the opinion of like, good luck to you if that ends up. I'll hold the pillow over your face if you want. Like, And I know that sounds really terrible, but it, that's the level of frustration that I feel sometimes when I'm dealing with with this kind of scenario. Um, you know, catch me on another day, and I might not be so ruthless. But that's just the, the passion that I have with this as well. You, you may or may not have seen my Facebook and Twitter posts in the last few days, and um, we've got a you know, about a, a, a friend. I, I can't I can't even call him a friend, but someone who's been trying to work for reform. In, against the medical regulator. And, um, I mean, I've spoken to him a few times. He's one of the few brave souls to stand up to the system. And in the most tragic circumstances, he took his own life last week because he couldn't take the pressure anymore. He's a good guy and he was trying to do the right thing and he... Um, you know, and. We've got a system which is coming down on us. I'm very fortunate. I've got I've got my own story and I've got my family to support me. But there are so many more. I'm going to give me the privilege of reading you something. And I've got permission Please. from him to. Um, he's a, 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 a doctor colleague. Okay, this is pretty powerful. Um who tried committing suicide under because he was caught up underneath this umbrella of APRA. You know, he actually didn't do anything wrong. This is a whole background story, but it's vexatious to complain. So I reached out to him because I knew this other guy you know, had committed suicide. And I said, you know, are you okay? And he said, um, no, man, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. Hospital name are still trying to justify why they had me bashed and held captive away from my family at Christmas time. APRA is still persecuting me. Medical insurer is still representing themselves rather than me. My kids didn't call me on Father's Day and my mum died, died last Tuesday with an incorrect diagnosis. And he then wrote, how are you? <laughs> oh, Jesus 
I then, he then wrote back, I should add my wife is still wanting more than 75% of the assets. It took me 30 years of hard work to acquire. I mean, his, his wife's part of the whole problem. This is it. Basically, I have no job, no family, no money, and no life. But none is due to any virus. I only live to clear my name. This is a system which is coming down on people for questioning. I know, I know his story. I know his story. He's done nothing wrong, yet the system has crushed this man. He's crushed his life. He's, he's taken his family away. And that's why, you know, that, that's a, a one, so one's, a one hat, you know, we can get rid of diabetes. You know, type 2, we can control all the complications of type 1 and type 2. We can, it's all completely controllable and avoidable. Those with type 2 people, you know, with the right info, if, you know, because of disinformation, they've chosen to have type 2. Your father, because of disinformation, called deliberate misinformation, has chosen to have type 2 diabetes and to have a poor health outcome. And with the right information that can be taken back, we have a central role to turn around obesity, mental health disease, the massive economic and social costs with it. Yet we've got a regulator here in Australia that's coming down on people who are trying to actually do change. That's what happened to me. And despite all my protestations that I was talking about biochemistry, and my protestations that this is a stitch-up job from the food industry, and here's the evidence, we've got a regulation authority which actually is doing that to people. It's all so wrong. Am I frustrated? I'm as frustrated as hell. But I understand where you come with comments about your father. I've got a sister with two autoimmune diseases, and I would just throttle her, and I said, would you just do what I'm talking about? And she said, and she's a, a nurse, and she said, no, you're a dumb orthopaedic surgeon. You're my brother. You don't know any of this stuff. We're going back some years. Anyway, a few years down the track, she did do it. She got significant control, not cured, but she got significantly better. And then she's come along and actually given talks on it now. You know, she's come full circle. Wow. But that's my own family. But, but um. Yeah, and I understand your frustration because they're people you love, you know, and when you can see that just falling for the disinformation but realising that the doctors are actually giving that wrong information based on the fact that their education has been completely, you know, manipulated. So my job is to keep spreading the message. That's what we're doing, having a chat. We're talking about it. And if it goes out to 10 people, good. If it goes to 1,000 or 100,000, that's even, you know, it's even better. But if, you know, if we can change one person's life, that's what it's about. And that's the beauty of social media and podcasts and lectures. They, get, they can be seen beyond. They can be until they're taken down, which will happen. So censorship's around. Because if I'm right, if you're right, then a hell of a lot of others are wrong. You know, careers are wrong. You know, that, that, and guess what? We're right. I, I've got to keep, I've got to, many, I won't keep you too much longer or you vice versa. Many, many years ago, when, because you asked me, you know, Belinda and I, we celebrate each month of going out and you know, being married. 
I used to give her a card every month and um, mostly vice versa. But anyway, so, but early on I found a card and in it it had, or on the front it had, it's just you and me versus the rest of the world. And I opened it up and on the inside it said, I think we'll need to take them by surprise. <laughs> that would be that would be over 35 years ago. And um, that, that's what we're doing. We're trying. We're just a couple of state school kids from a backwater little place called Tasmania, but, you know, we, we've, we're trying. Well, I'm, I'm incredibly proud to know you both and, and, and I, I can't support the work that you are doing more uh, and I will do everything in my power to try and, you know, get this message out, as I, me- as I mentioned. We've spoken about some pretty heavy stuff, Dr. Gary. What, what, what are some of the really positive, good stuff that people can start taking action to do to help turn this tide? Start reading. Just question. Just question. If it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, if our message is to, I'll come back to that thing, eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food, based on your culture and environment, reducing added sugar and processed food. If it comes in a cardboard box or a plastic bag and has a label on it, you don't need it. You just don't need it. And that you are not going to die of starvation if you fast for a few hours. I like eating. I mean, I like breakfast. Belinda sort of breaks her fast, you know, sometime during the day. But I'm I'm a creature of habit. I do like food in the mornings i like eating but i'm also not afraid of not eating and that's what it's you know and so therefore if a whole lot of distraction food comes past me which happens in hospitals all the time i mean hospital food is totally you know it's not a disaster but it's there but i've learned to not eat it i'm not swayed by it because it's brown it's got the myard reaction i go i don't want that hit my brain i understand now that sugar will drive behavior once you start recognizing that the food's driving behavior and i actually don't need it then you start becoming empowered and we've got infinitely more control over our outcome our health today tomorrow and into the future by the decisions we make today and you don't have to be hardcore keto you start just cutting back on crap food and highly processed food, you're on that journey. And you don't have to get it right the first time. You know, I get people say, oh, I've failed, I can't do it. I said, well, do it again. You know, it's a bit like smoking. You know, not everyone has to give up smoking on the first day. If you aware, first of all, be aware that you've got a problem. Be Two, be aware that there's something you, you can do about it. And three, you can then do, once you can do something about it, you can do something about it for your family. It's called leadership. And that's what I'm doing my damnedest, Gary. I'm doing my damnedest because I've knocked all of those things on their head. Uh, sugar is the last vice that I, I have periods of um, achievement and and then, you know, like it, it just it gets me from time to time. I'm, I'm far from perfect and I'll always freely admit that, but I'm inspired by the, uh, the, the spy, Edward Snowden, who was recently on uh, Joe Rogan. He was on last night, actually. And they are considering uh, getting a pardon for him. 
And I don't know if you know much about mm. what Edward Snowden did, but if there's hope for Edward Snowden, there's hope for Gary Fetke and Belinda Fetke. Uh, and, and I'm excited for the future. And uh, we're just going to ride this out. Where can people find you, Gary? Um, well, just sitting down here in Launceston, Tasmania. But uh, <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, Gary Fetke, but under the handle Fructose No. Linda's on Twitter as well. Um, we've got a couple of websites. Uh, we're both on fa- or Facebook. Belinda's got the Facebook page, uh, Belinda Fetke No Fructose, which used to be Gary Fetke No Fructose, but she took it on as part of the, to the regulators. <laughs> and I can be quoted on that. And um, <laughs> He's giving the finger for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I, don't, I don't get cramped from extending my middle fingers. <laughs> the... Um, and then uh, Belinda's work, which I think is really important to understand how we've gotten to this position, is that I support Gary.com. Bit corny, but that's what she was. She wanted to do it because that she was getting me off. And I've got an out, well and truly out of date website called NoFructose.com, which is another project. And um, uh, yeah, we're busy, but Twitter, Twitter is where you'll find us making most of our comments at the moment. Oh, and we'll Instagram, link. but I don't understand Instagram. <laughs> we'll link all those uh, social media uh, handles below um, or wherever you are listening. So keep an eye out for those. Gary, if you were given a wand to wave and you had one wish that you could use for anything, what would that wish be? Uh, to have an ongoing, wonderful life with my wife. And that's being purely selfish, okay? I understand purely selfish. I'd love, you know, ultimately I have an aim in life is to leave the world a better place because I think we're all parasites on the planet and we're trying to do that, but uh, I think I'll just stick with Belinda for the long term. And I know that's, she's my partner in this. We couldn't do it together. Uh, We couldn't do it apart. And, uh, and I, I, look, I'm an old romantic, but then um, you've met Belinda and uh, we're on this journey together. We've got no idea where the destination is. That's the important thing. Well, we are blessed as a race, as a nation, as a planet to have the two of you involved. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart from sharing, for sharing all of this uh, amazing information today. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gary Fecky. Laban, thanks, mate. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.